Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity that we have this morning to pause for a few moments to reflect on your goodness and your holy word. And Father, we need your help. I need your help. We pray that the Holy Spirit would use this feeble instrument, human words, reflecting on the Word of God, to apply to our hearts this morning. You know what we need today. We pray that the Holy Spirit would specifically tailor the message to our individual needs. For we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, today we are beginning a new fall series of messages. Hard to believe it's fall, isn't it? But thank you uh, for allowing me to uh, speak at other places this summer. And I am back in the pulpit uh, for 10 straight Sabbaths. Can you believe that? So 10 straight Sabbaths, I will be here barring any unexpected things. But that's the plan. And we'll be journeying through the life of Paul. And Paul is one of the most significant contributors to the New Testament some would argue the most prolific and theologically nuanced writer of the New Testament. It's hard to imagine the Protestant Reformation taking place without the writings of Paul, and specifically the idea that the just shall live by faith. So today we want to focus on his conversion. Now, as we go through this journey, I want to invite you to read the book Acts of the Apostles in addition to the book of Acts in the Bible. This is from Ellen White. It's part of the Conflict series. You can find this online. It is a rich resource and insight that is complementary to the Holy Scriptures, and I'll be referencing that in our study today. And as we look at his conversion, I want to invite you to go with me in your Bibles to the sermon preached by Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verses 51 through 60. The backdrop for this is that Stephen has been chosen as a deacon, and he begins preaching the word of God with power. And this is a threat to the religious leaders, so he's brought under false pretenses and false accusations to a trial before the religious leaders. And in Acts chapter 7, he begins preaching to the Sanhedrin at this trial. You can read this on a Sabbath afternoon, chapter 7. I want to pick up in verse 51 because as many preachers do, you notice when your congregation begins to drift. People start falling asleep, maybe, or going elsewhere. And Stephen noticed that his audience was not tracking with him anymore. It's not that they weren't paying attention. His words were having no effect. So in the midst of his sermon that he's giving to the religious leaders, he stops. The line of giving the the thread of Jesus being the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies, and he diverges and cuts straight to the chase. And this is a straight message. Let's pick it up in verse 51. You can notice the immediate transition if you're reading through chapter 7. In 51, 
verse 51, you see, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Everyone suddenly perked up at that moment. You can imagine, like, what? How dare you call us that? You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed the one who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is what's happening. Stephen is preaching a sermon. Suddenly he notices that no one is listening and so he cuts straight, straight to the chase and says, Look, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. And when they heard this, there was a satanic, demonic frenzy that went over the Sanhedrin. They were going to kill him that day. Stephen knew that he had just signed his death sentence. In the book Acts of the Apostles, she comments that Stephen no longer feared death and filled with the Holy Spirit in that moment that he knew that he was a dead man. He had a vision of heaven and God on his throne and Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God. The Bible tells us that Stephen's face was like that of an angel. Everyone could see that this man was inspired by God. They never forgot that face. That face of inspiration, looking up toward heaven, saying, I see Jesus right now standing at the right hand of the throne of God. In that moment, it was a moment for their conversion in the Holy Spirit. But notice their response. Verse 57, Then they cried out with a loud voice. And the Bible says, And they stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of the young man named Saul, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This was a difficult time for the early church. This was the first Christian martyr. Tertullian says that the blood of martyrs is seed. And there was something that happened. The Bible says that, uh, I think I had this reference here, but let me back up here. This is from Acts of the Apostles, uh, page 101. His Stephen's death was a sore trial to the church, but it resulted in the conviction of Saul, who could not efface from his memory the faith and constancy of the martyr and the glory that had rested on his countenance. Afterward, he was angered by his own secret conviction 
that Stephen had been honored by God. She goes on. All of these things had appealed loudly to Saul and at times had thrust upon his mind an almost overwhelming conviction that Jesus was the promised Messiah. At such times, he had struggled for entire nights against this conviction, and always he had ended the matter by avowing his belief that Jesus was not the Messiah and that his followers were deluded fanatics. The memory of that face, Stephen's face of an angel, and the memory of his final words, Lord, don't let this sin be held against them. That was his final words. Have you ever been convicted before? I'm not talking about convicted of a felony, but I'm talking about being convicted by the Holy Spirit. In other words, you know deep down inside what you need to do, but you don't want to do it. Perhaps it's breaking off a relationship. Perhaps it's following the Lord in terms of stewardship. Perhaps it's an area of your life that God is calling you to surrender, but you're convicted and you know in your heart of hearts what you need to do, but you don't want to do it. And here Saul was. He could never erase from his memory the face of that Christian martyr, Stephen. And he was convicted. Now, I want to make a few comments about conviction. That's going to be the theme of our message today. This is from the book Evangelism, page 284. Every fresh display of conviction of the grace of God upon the souls of unbelievers is divine. I would say same for believers as well. We all feel conviction at different points in our experience. Now, when I was... Uh, living my life uh, as a young person and apart from the Lord, I remember the overwhelming sense of conviction I heard at a camp meeting that my parents dragged me to. And I was sitting in the audience, not wanting to be there. And the message that was talked about was about stealing and about how this person lived a life of, of thievery and met the Lord and felt the impression and the conviction to restore what he had stolen. And just before that message, I had stolen something. And I sat there and I just squirmed in my chair because of the conviction upon my own heart. We've all felt that moment where the Holy Spirit, that still small voice, is saying to us, this is the decision that you need to make. And we know that we need to make it, but we don't want to. And here it is. This is evidence that the Holy Spirit is working. Now, there are different indications or visible manifestations of conviction. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is like the wind. You can't see the wind. You can't see the Holy Spirit. But when the wind blows, can you sense that the wind is blowing? When the wind blows, the tree shakes. And so when you're working with someone or in your own heart and you notice that the tree is shaking, you can know that the Holy Spirit is working. Now, here are some positive indicators. This is from Pastor Louis Torres on conviction. These are positive indications of 
conviction. Some people, depending on the issue, they meet conviction with joy. They're like, oh, praise the Lord. About the Sabbath, you know, state of the dead, oh. Uh, others sharing and telling other others, this is all evidence of conviction, application. They personalize it, integrate it into their personal lives. Uh, tears of joy. Uh, they can't stay away from a study of the Word of God. The lighting up of the face. I've seen conviction. I'm sharing the Word of God with someone, and you can see the conviction because their faces shine and radiate. Conviction. Um, they become friendly, uh, questions, studying more, positive attitude changes, lifestyle changes, restitution, peace. They want to pray about it more. So these are the types of convictions that I like to see in a Bible study. You know, it's these positive indicators, tears of joy and, and radiance and so forth. These are the ones that we just look forward to as we're sharing the Word of God. But there's also some negative indicators. Now, mind you, these negative indicators is not indicative that they are not under conviction or, or that this is not a positive thing, but people respond to conviction different ways depending on where they are in life and even personality and character. I have been in Bible studies where I present something and they get mad, hopping mad, angry at me. And I used to personalize that but afterwards, after this revelation and this study, I realized that it wasn't about me. You know, one of the most liberating things for a pastor was that there's not an, a vacancy in the third person of the Godhead. And he's not expecting me to take his place. In other words, I'm not the Holy Spirit. It's not my responsibility to convict others. That's his role, or convert others. Amen? And remember that in your marriages, spouses, amen? God is not calling you to be the Holy Spirit. You're to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, but not be the Holy Spirit. He can do his role. We are to sense that. So, so as the Holy Spirit is convicting and the person responses with anger, I step back and say, hey, it's not about me. He, this person, he or she, is wrestling with this issue. Sometimes there's sorrow, rejection, argument, tears, uh, avoidance, anger, resistance, objections, refusal to study, negative attitudes and changes, rebellion, denial, restlessness, and irritability. These are all indications of conviction. Now, Saul was convicted. Saul would later become Paul, the apostle. He was convicted. He could not erase from his memory the stoning of Stephen. Now, when you are a martyr, whether your character is being assassinated or someone is coming against you, God can use that very painful experience in your life to convict somebody. And that's exactly what happened here. Paul could not erase it, and Paul's personality was anger. He dealt with his conviction by uh, responding in an angry way. The Desire of Ages 306 indicates the, the way that people respond to conviction. The light of Christ sweeps away the darkness that covers their sins, and the need of reform is made manifest. While those who yield to the influence of the Holy Spirit begin war with themselves, those who cling to sin war against the truth and its representatives. And this is what happened with Saul of Tarsus. Here it is in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And Saul approved of killing him 
And on that day, a great persecution broke against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to persecute the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. This is his conversion in Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 4. I'll read it through very quickly. Saul is on his way to Damascus to take more Christians off to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Note Christ identifies his people uh, with his people. Christ suffers with his people. He said, why are, are you persecuting me? Now, Paul in another place in the book of Acts gives the account again to uh, a Roman official. But in this account, he adds a line that is found in the original manuscript. This is Acts chapter 26, verse 14. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Some translations say, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. Now, this is not a term that we use commonly today, but a prick or a goad was used on oxen to, to keep them going or to get them going a little bit faster. And, and here, Jesus uses this analogy. Perhaps there was a goaded oxen on the road to Damascus. This is from the Bible commentary. The figure is drawn from Eastern plowman's custom of using an iron goad to hasten the slow gait of his oxen. It's possible that the scene was actually being enacted beside the Damascus Road and that the Lord took it as an apt illustration for his message to the persecutor. The divine message suggests that Paul's conscience had been vigorously resisting the appeals of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he was fighting conviction. I have had sleepless nights where I've been fighting conviction. Have you? Nights where the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart. You need to take this stand. You need to make this decision. But I fought it over and over again. You know what God is calling you to do. And so the Holy Spirit was working with Paul and here Jesus says, why are you fighting your conscience? And this is what Acts the Apostles comments on this. In that hour, heavenly illumination, in that hour of heavenly illumination, Saul's mind acted with remarkable rapidity. The prophetic records of Holy Writ were opened to his understanding. When he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, remember, Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. His mind worked with rapid accuracy as he went over prophecy and prophecy and prophecy in his mind, connecting the linkage of Jesus to being the Messiah. And here was Paul's conversion. Now, I want to mention here as a side note that not every conversion is as dramatic as Paul's. Some people say, hey, I don't have a testimony like Paul's. And sometimes we have individuals come forward that say, look, I was this way and I was this way afterwards. And it's a dramatic conversion. And other individuals are converted, but their conversions are a lot more quiet 
And just because your conversion is more quiet doesn't mean that you're not converted. Some individuals have been walking with the Lord and hearing his voice all their life, and their conversion experience has been one that is gradual, and they can't point to a single place where they went from A to Z overnight. But here was Paul's, Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle, dramatic conversion. Now, I remember my conversion specifically. Mine wasn't as dramatic as Paul's, but mine was, was notable. I remember kneeling down, accepting the Lord Jesus, and the next day, I felt like a new creature when I got up in the morning. That next year was a year of marked transformation that was visibly evident, especially to my friends and my circle of influence. It was the beginning of my walk with the Lord into ministry. Marked change. Yours may not be as marked, but here was Paul's conversion. And he goes from being an individual that was killing Christians to an individual that became arguably one of the greatest apostles of the New Testament. Here's a point I want to make as we go through this idea of conversion and conviction. Spiritual understanding is not an issue of the mind. It is an issue of the heart. Spiritual understanding is not an issue of the mind. It's an issue of the heart. See, Paul was not lacking in terms of intelligence. It was not an IQ problem. It was an I will problem. And there are times when I'm presenting a Bible study, I will walk away from a Bible study. I don't do it very often, but there are times when I have met with a person over and over and over again. You presented the same themes over and over again, and I come to the realization that this is not an intellectual problem. It's not an understanding problem. It's not an IQ problem. It's an I will problem. And the reason why this person does not want to see it is because this is an inconvenient truth. It's a truth that they don't want to follow. And so I will walk away and I say, look, you know where I am. You call me when you're ready to move in the direction. And the Bible says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. In other words, the Bible points out that the, the idea of there being no God is not so much an intellectual issue. It's a heart issue. It's an issue of morality. Spiritual understanding is not so much an issue of intelligence. It's an issue of willingness to follow the Lord. And here Paul was on the road to Damascus. Suddenly he's converted and then he can see. Conversion is the prerequisite to spiritual understanding. Great Controversy, page 599. One reason why many theologians have no clear understanding of God's word is that they close their eyes to the truths they do not wish to practice. In other words, theologians, the reason why they can't understand any further sometimes is not because they can't understand Greek or Hebrew. The issue is not intellectual, it's moral. Oh, 
Um, Acts of the Apostles, very quickly. Um, page 119, during the long hours when Saul was shut in with God alone, he recalled many of the passages of Scripture referring to the first advent of Christ. Carefully, he traced down the prophecies with a, with a memory sharpened by the conviction that had taken possession of his mind. As we talk about conviction, it's... Uh, can you help me out there? Something's wrong with my clicker here. It seems like it happens... We'll just fake it here. Okay. Oh. There we go. One, one more back. Did we jam up? Anyway, I'll just read this one. Christ is a source of every right impulse. He is the only one that can implant in the heart enmity against sin. Every desire. I'll go back to the other one I was reading. <laughs> every desire for truth. And purity, every conviction of our own sinfulness is evidence that the Holy Spirit is moving upon our hearts. So conviction is not a bad thing. When you feel like you need to make a decision, it's evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in your life. Now, there have been times when I have fought conviction. Have you? Have you had a sense that God was calling you to make a decision, a very painful decision, and you're like, I wish I did not feel this way. You can't sleep at night. You're tossing and turning. You feel a sense of lack of peace, lack of joy. This is not evidence that the Holy Spirit has left you. This is evidence that the Holy Spirit is working with you. It's a moment of grace. Now, some people will come to me and say, Pastor, I'm afraid that I've committed the unpardonable sin. Well, if you're worried that you've committed the unpardonable sin, you haven't committed the unpardonable sin. The point is, the person that has committed the unpardonable sin no longer cares anymore. They've become numb. They have become desensitized to the truth. And so when you feel that lack of peace, you feel that you need to make a change, it's evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in your life and heart. Evangelism, page 229. When persons who are under conviction are not brought to make a decision at the earliest possible period, there is danger that the conviction will gradually wear away. I've seen this over and over again where I'm sitting with an individual and you can sense the conviction in the room. I don't see the Holy Spirit, but I can sense the Holy Spirit moving. There is visible manifestation. I feel it in my own heart. I can sense in the person's eyes that they need to make a decision. They're in a relationship that God is not condoning. They're dating someone that they should not be dating. They're not returning a faithful tie to the Lord. Whatever it may be, I'm there and I'm letting the word of God speak and you can sense in their eyes the conviction that they need to make a decision. But they don't. I meet with that person two weeks later. Same Bible text. And you know what that person sometimes says? Pastor, I don't see it anymore. I don't feel like that God is calling me to break off this relationship. I don't feel that God is calling me to return a faithful tithe. What has happened? Has the word of God changed? The person has changed. 
And the reality is this: every time we don't make a decision, we are a different person tomorrow than we were today, and the next day, and the next, and we are changed by not making a decision. And I tell people, look, the best opportunity and the best time to make a spiritual decision is always today. Always today, you will be a different person tomorrow if you do not respond today. I just read about a notable Christian pastor. That just proclaimed in July that he no longer believes in Jesus on Instagram. The Christian community is shocked. And as I've read on Christianity Today, individuals reflecting on the falling away of this prominent pastor, people are asking, "How did this happen?" How can a man that upheld Jesus Christ now say that he's no longer a believer, and he's apologizing to the LGBTQ community and saying, "Look, I'm sorry. In the past, I condone your lifestyle. Now, how did that happen?" And so this man has gone down this path, and it did not happen overnight, but it was gradually. Gradual. Some people wake up and say, "Look, how did I ever end up in this position? How did I end up here?" Well, it didn't happen overnight. It came through a series of decisions, or in this case, a lack of decisions. And you will be a different person five, ten, twenty years from now if you keep going down this trajectory of fighting the conviction. And that's why the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, "Today." If you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. The best opportunity for a spiritual decision is always today. You know what God is calling you to do. I want to invite you to stand with me as we prepare to close here this morning. Every head bowed and eyes closed. I'm going to make a specific appeal this morning. This is not a general appeal. This is a specific appeal. If you have been fighting conviction, and God has been calling you to a spiritual decision, I don't know what it may be, but you know it in your own heart of hearts. Perhaps it's in terms of your relationship. Perhaps it's something that God is calling you to surrender in your life. Perhaps. It's an area in your life that you've been fighting against. It's an addiction that has had its chains around you your entire life, and you're like, Lord, I've been fighting this conviction. Help me, willing to be made willing. And you want deliverance today. And you want to say, Lord, I surrender. This is a specific appeal. There's an area of your life that God has been convicting you on, and you want to say, Lord. I'm tired of fighting. Help me, willing to be made willing. You want to say, Lord, I can't do this anymore. I want to surrender. I want to invite you to come forward this morning for special prayer. 
Remember what the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. You're not assured of tomorrow. You don't know if you're going to be alive. Even if you are alive, you're going to be a different person tomorrow than you are today. Don't let this opportunity pass. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. If, if someone is blocking the aisle, just tap the person next to you. They'll move. This is a spiritual decision here this morning. It's a physical act that indicates a spiritual decision. Who cares what other people think? We're all among friends today. This is between you and God. There's an area of your life that God is calling you to surrender. And you want to say, Lord, I want to lay this area on the altar this morning. Is there someone else that wants to come forward today? Heaven is rejoicing. When you come forward, that is your consent for God to say, look, I have authorization to move in now. This individual has come forward. This is their consent. The most powerful thing that you can do in your relationship with God is is to give your consent. And by coming forward, you're acknowledging that this morning. God bless you, my brother. God bless you, my brother. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we need your help. Our promises are like ropes of sand. And Lord, there is this area of our lives that we've held on to, that we've cherished, that we've idolized. And Lord, your spirit has been speaking to us this morning, calling us to surrender, calling us to be made willing, to be willing to be made willing. And I pray for all of us here today that your Holy Spirit would do its work. I pray especially for the individuals that have come forward today. You know our hearts. By coming forward, we have acknowledged our incapability of dealing with this area. But Lord, we are giving our consent for Jesus through the agency of the Holy Spirit to move upon our hearts. We accept that by faith this morning, regardless of the way that we may or may not feel. For we thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.